Hallelujah. Well, here's the deal. We started a series about three weeks ago called Spiritual Warfare. And one of the things that is definitely fascinating to me is when you enter into a teaching like this on spiritual warfare, it's amazing how your eyes begin to open a little bit to some of the stuff that's going on. Because the problem is, is that we lose sight of what God told us that our battle and responsibility in that battle is. And so our passage that we've been in, 2 Corinthians 10, if you've got your Bible, open up to that. I have them up on the screen for you. Um, apparently we've been having some resolution issues. I've got some of that fixed. I didn't realize it till this morning. My wife, I'm sitting like, why didn't you tell me? She, I forgot. So here we are. But I, I think we're getting it down. We're, we're closer than what we were. Let's put it that way. But 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 1. It says, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present that I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God. And the problem is, is we want to battle with what we can see, touch, and feel. We lose sight that God gave us a way to do battle and we should follow that. We, 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 we tend to overlook it. It's like if you've ever noticed that when somebody's going through a rough time, the first thing they do is they call somebody. The last thing they do is open their Bible and pray. More often than not. What are we looking for? We're looking for confirmation. Are we doing things right? Are we looking in the right area? You know, give me something. I need, hold my hand. And that's not a necessarily bad thing. The problem is, is that that should happen after we start with God. We give it to God and we trust Him that He is going to lead us and that He's going to lead people across our path to help us. And so over the last couple of weeks, I've talked about so the four questions that all believers must be able to answer and it must be done from a biblical basis. The first one is, who is God? The second one is, who am I in relationship to Him? The third one, which is what we're going to talk about today, is how do I worship Him? And the fourth one is, who is my enemy? And when we get next week, we're going to springboard in, who is our enemy? And we have a real enemy out there that we must do battle with. But more often than not, it's not who you think it is. It's the person that you see. And that is why the Bible talks about this. So we'll get into that more. But how do I worship Him is what we're going to focus on today. Now, I, I, as I was praying and putting this stuff together, the Lord kind of took me in a little bit different direction than I normally would have gone in this. Because when we talk about worship, what is the first thing that pops in your mind of worship? What we just did. Grab a guitar, let's sing a few songs and whatnot, and let's worship, right? And the worship is good as if we pick songs that you happen to like. And the worship is bad if we didn't, right? As if the, the song choice has anything to do with our worship experience when we come together as a church. But there are two things that we really must become. We must become extravagant worshipers and we must become extreme witnesses. Extravagant worshiper is means that somebody who truly, truly knows God. 
extravagantly means over and above the call of duty. We worship God with everything. And a lot of the songs we sang today, you kind of heard those, those, those lyrics. You are my world. You are everything to me. Um, but we got to know Him. And the next part of that is we need to be an extreme witness. We need to make Him known. Worshiping God entails all of this. We've got to find a way to interject Jesus into every conversation that we have. And sometimes we do really well with this, and other times not so much. And the problem is, is because we constantly put Jesus to the back burner. We put Christ, the reason that we exist, on a shelf and go about our day. We lose sight and we lose focus of what we should be doing. You know, the truth is, is that we should become Amway salesmen for Jesus, honestly. You ever met an Amway salesman or somebody who's doing one of those multi-level marketing things? And I'm not throwing them you know, under the bus or saying this is a bad thing, you shouldn't do it. Because people make money with it. There's nothing inherently wrong. But those people, it's kind of like insurance salesmen. You try to avoid them, right? <laughs> Did you, anybody ever see Groundhog Day? I can say that. I sold insurance for 10 years, so I'm confident. And I know that people, you know, family get-togethers change. I'm like, where's everybody at? You know, but Groundhog's Day, if you remember that movie where he sees the guy and he's like, do you have enough insurance? Because you could always use some more. Am I right? Am I right? Or am I right? You know, I mean, it's the same thing. These guys come around. The big thing out where we came from is all of a sudden everybody's on Plexus. If you've seen Plexus, it's some pink drink. And it's amazing that that's all they talk about anymore. And at first it's like, yeah, look how much weight we lost. And now they're not talking about weight loss anymore. They're talking about everything else that it does. That's because they quit losing weight. Whatever. I'm not saying you shouldn't try Plexus. If you want Plexus, do Plexus. Whatever. But honestly, we should interject Christ in the way we interject everything else. Here in about 45 days, football season will be upon us. Thank you, Jesus. Football is of God. If you're a Nebraska fan. If you're not, if you're not... That's all right. We'll forgive you. But, but, but here's the deal. I mean, and, and you will hear everybody talking about it. I promise you that Jim, Paul, myself, and Stanley, at a minimum, will be standing around on Sunday mornings and talking about football. We'll be making fun of Missouri. We'll be making fun of Oklahoma. And Paul and I will be reigning as kings as Nebraska brings it home for the first time in several years. Right? Right, Paul? Can I get an amen? Uh, there we go. Now we're preaching. So... <laughs> but open your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 3. This is where we're going to start today. 1 Kings chapter 3. This is the part of this passage where God says to Solomon, ask me anything you want, whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. I know what I would be asking, but he didn't ask for that. It's kind of like when they, if you ever saw Aladdin and said, you can't wish for more wishes. That's what I'm doing. How many do I get? So 1 Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 5, and as a part of this, I really want to point out. It's verse 5 says, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. He's referring to himself. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Verse 8, And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. 
For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now here it is, Solomon, what did he ask for? He asked for wisdom, right? And we all know that, we hear about that. Look at Solomon. He didn't ask for things of this world. He didn't get greedy or anything like that. He asked for wisdom, but we never ask why. And, and that's the part in verse 7 that I want you to look at. He says, I do not know how to go out or how to come in. And I'll bet you most of us have read this time after time after time and never even gave that a second thought. What does it mean to go out or come in? And there's a principle here that we need to understand, especially when it comes to worship. Because Solomon said that I can never be a good leader unless I know how to do this. Alright, so if you've got a real Bible, underline that I do not know how to go out or come in. Underline that passage because I want you to grab what we're going to do because we're going to look at a few more. I'll give you just a second to do that, but start making your way over to Numbers 27. This is going to be weird because we're talking about worship and we're pretty much all in the Old Testament today. Numbers 27 and verse 15. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. What is happening here? Moses is praying to God for his replacement. And he's got some criteria that he's laying out. He said, somebody who may go out before them and come in before them. Who may lead them out and bring them in. Why? So the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep with no shepherd. It's, 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 it's pastoral speaking here in this word. He said, when he bring in a new pastor, I want him to be able to do one thing. Bring them in and lead them out. Moses is, is getting ready to retire, basically. He's getting old. I believe he's 120, if I memory serves me correctly. And, and he's getting ready to lay it down. He said, God, bring somebody in that can do this. This is that important. And how many of you guys in here, show of hands, had ever even noticed that that part of these two scriptures before? That's what I thought. We're all in the same boat, kind of. We never really think about this. Why is this so important to Moses? Let's look at another one. Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 1. Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. Also the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross over this Jordan. He's giving the reason he is retiring. Why is he, right? Why is he packing it up? Why is he laying it down? He's saying, I can't go out or come in. And we've just read three different passages of Scripture that talked about this very principle that is obviously very, very important. And yet not in one of these has it given us any indication the what on earth they're talking about, right? The key to this is found in Joshua 14. Joshua chapter 14. I've got you working out a little bit, but I want to lay this foundation. Joshua 14 and verse 11. As yet, I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me, just as my strength was then. So now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. This is a military term. Solomon said that this is what his father knew how to do, but he's, I, I don't know, Lord, I need wisdom. This is the one request that the new leader that Moses was, was praying about would come in. And this is what Caleb was saying when he talked about having the same strength at 80 as he did when Moses sent him. But it was important. 
This is a military term that's going on. So what is this talking about? Every time that they would come in from war, the first place that they would go was to the tabernacle to thank God for the victory. First thing they did, they would come back in. They didn't celebrate. They didn't have ticker tape parades. They didn't have any of that kind of stuff. They came to the house of God and worshipped and thanked Him for providing what they had. They would also do this in the, the middle of the war. The leaders would tell them that if they, they would need a break and whatnot, and they would come in. And again, this would be the first thing they do. They come in off the battlefield. First thing they do, they go to the tabernacle. They go and offer sacrifices to God and give worship to God, the thanks for the spoils of war. And there are instances in the Bible where they would come home and they wouldn't even sleep in their house, but they'd actually sleep on the doorstep because they wanted to be completely consecrated to God so that they'd have the strength for the war. They'd, they didn't want any distractions. They didn't want anything holding them back. They were going out, and then they would come in. But the only thing on their mind in all of this was how honoring to God we are being. We want to worship God. First thing we got to do, we got to come in, and we got to give thanks and glory to God. And they put out all distractions. Didn't even sleep in their bed. I mean, I can't imagine what the wartime was out, like out there, but I can't imagine it's pleasant and they want to come home and sleep on their Serta mattress that folds up and down and stuff and is air-cooled and all that. Probably not so much. But, but you know, I mean, they, they, they put away all the, the splendor and whatnot to lay down their lives before God. They wanted to stay consecrated before Him. And this is a principle that we need to know. In order to understand how we worship God, we've got to understand the going out and coming in. And what this is talking about is we need to be in the presence of God, not just on Sunday. But every day, because when we walk outside of our house, we've just stepped on to a battlefield. It's a principle that every believer has to have. Worshiping God is more than just singing songs, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's really referring to entering into the presence of God. So going out, when we talk about going out, we're not talking about going out from His presence. We're talking about going out with His presence. They'd come together, they'd consecrate themselves, they'd do the sacrifice. Why? Because God is my source. He is my strength, therefore I will come back, I will honor Him together with whomever happens to be there, and then when I go back up, I'm rejuvenated. Somehow we get the idea that we come to church and meet with God, and we leave and that God stays here. It's almost like, you ever been to one of those churches where the pastor stands at the back door and shakes your hand, hey, thanks for coming, thanks for flying Delta, have a great day, you know, whatever. We almost treat Jesus like that, like he's standing there saying, hey, thanks for stopping by, we'll see you in a few days, have a great week, we'll see you later. Life is good, be blessed, Shondai, you know, whatever. We treat Jesus as if this is the place where he lives. Now back then, that was the place that he resided, was in the tabernacle, into the most holy place. You know what the tabernacle is today? Yeah, look around. It's us. The Holy Spirit resides in us. We go out with His presence. Coming in refers to worship. Going out refers to witnessing. Living a life. The reason Israel would go to war was to show the world that their God was the true God. You ever question why God chose Israel of all nations He could have picked? Why He made them His elect people, His chosen people? The smallest nation in the world. Insignificant, tiny, nobody cares, 
right? And yet they're the center of the news pretty much daily. Well, except the last few weeks. We've, we've, we've screwed that up. But, but besides that, God picks the smallest nation in the world and He makes them the most powerful nation in the world. And what is He showing? That their God is the true God. The reason that they had the dietary laws and all the other things that they did was they were separating themselves from the rest of the world. They're saying, we're doing things the way that our God told us to do it, but everything they did was to prove that their God was the true God. Every battle showed the presence and the power of God. And it's the same with us. Every time we go into the world, we're to take that presence and the power of God with us and show the world that our God is the true God. In this country, we don't run into a lot of false religions. Let's just call it that. What we run into is a lot of humanism. We don't exactly see Buddhists on a regular basis in Rockport, Missouri. But we do see a lot of people that worship themselves. You know what else they worship? They worship mammon. They worship at the feet of the almighty dollar. And the problem is with mammon, and, and we're going to do a series on money, and I'll get into this more. But mammon makes a lot of promises that only God can fulfill. He's promising something that he has no capable way of delivering. And he was an actual, mammon was an actual God that was worshipped. Okay, so when you see that, it's not just saying money. It was a God, but it was the God of currency. It was the God of money, so to speak. We have the power of God. He said, I want you to come in and worship. And then I want you to go out and witness. 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18, starting in verse 12. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. Here's the leader that wasn't just saying, go do a few things. He's out there with them, and he's worshiping with them. This is what Solomon knew about his father. He knew that he knew how to do this, and he knew in order to be a successful leader, he's got to figure this out. That's why he asked God, give me wisdom on how to do this. How do I lead this people? How do I do all of that? And look at that passage. Saul was afraid of him. Why? Because the Spirit of God was on David, but had left Saul. Here we go. The Spirit of God is within us. And the rest of the world should be trembling. If we're living our lives to its fullest, not, not in a, a, a way to bring a bunch of stuff in, but the fullness of our lives should always point to Christ. Last week when we talked about who am I in relationship to God, what was the premise of it? It's not who I am. It's all about who He is. It's the same here. So you have David who is full of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells on him. He's going out. He's coming in. And then a few years later, something happens. He falls. 2 Samuel, verse 11. Verses 1 and 2. Asking the question, why, why did David fall? It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when the kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. 
What time of the year was it? It was the spring. What happens in the spring? At the time when kings go out to battle. But what did David do? He didn't go out. He stayed in. He sent somebody else in his place. If David had done what he was supposed to do, if he had gone out the way that God had said, this is what you do, we would never have read this story. We'd never read this passage. This wouldn't be here. It'd be another battle that David goes out and wins and victory is glorifying to God. Here's the problem. Is that believers today become a reservoir. They're really good at coming in. We come in, we want God to touch us. Touch me, Lord. Show me, Lord. Do something, Lord. Fill me, Lord. The problem is we never go out. We're really good at coming together and worshiping God. We're really bad about going out and doing the other half of it. It's the worshiping and the witnessing. It's, 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 it's glorifying God in all that we do. The problem is, is we were never designed to be a reservoir. We were designed to be a river. A place where water simply passes through. It fills up. It continues to flow. It's continuous. It's always going. When it, it's always flowing out and, and, and from you. And if you ever stop it from flowing, what happens? You begin to sink. What happens when we're constantly just filling ourselves up? Yeah, we feel good, but what good are we? You know, I know people that are very prideful in how much Scripture that they can memorize, how much Scripture they know. They're the smartest people in the world, and they've never witnessed to somebody in their entire life. They've never laid it out there on the line to use that knowledge that God has allowed them to have, that's given them, to do something. It's like we just absorb it. We see churches today that we turn churches around to making it all about us. And yet, when we come together to worship, what should we be doing? Worshiping God. Not worshiping ourselves. Not God, what can you do for me today? The presence of God is not for us to absorb only, but to take out and expend. When we stop witnessing or ministering to people and allowing the life of God to flow through us, we're truly heading for a fall. Because we can't. We've got to have both parts. It may not necessarily be a moral failure, but more than likely it would become a prideful issue in your life. It could be a distraction. Bottom line is it will make you ineffective. We're to be effective, not ineffective. If you're always going out and just the opposite and never coming in to worship God, what are you going to do? You're going to dry up. We have to have both. We can't settle for one or the other. There's a reason these principles are laid out all through Scripture and that we need both. Let me give you a New Testament principle on this. In, this, in Luke chapter 14, if you want to turn over there, I do have it up on the screen. Luke chapter 14. But this is the parable of the Great Supper. Okay? We're going to start in verse 15. Luke 14, starting in verse 15. Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. This isn't Christ speaking, this is him being spoken to in this parable. Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask to you that I be excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused as well. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. 
So that servant came and reported those things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. The master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Now they call this the parable of the great supper. They should have called it the parable of the lame excuses. Is really what it should have been. Because let's look at this. Let's break this down. The first excuse that was given. What was he talking about? I, I just bought some ground, and I need to go look at it. Okay. Well, there's some problems in this. First of all, who buys ground without going to look at it first? Like you're you're, you're backwards. In this, I mean, it's not like it moves. It's not going anywhere. It's not like it's going to get up and walk away. You can go look at it the next day. The other part of this is that banquets were always held at night. It was dark. Flashlights were not invented yet. They did not have iPhones with an app on it that produces light. So you can't see it anyway. So yeah, this is kind of messed up. That's the excuse. How about the second one? I just bought some oxen and I have to test them. Okay, well... Again, it's at night. Oxen don't glow in the dark the last time I checked. Now, I'm not a farmer, so any farmers speak up if, if they do. But, but again, who buys these oxen without testing them out? I mean, it's like buying a car without taking it for a spin. You know, who, who does that? But the third one, the third excuse is my, my personal favorite. And I'm going to read this again because if you look at the wording, it's completely different. The first one was, you know, I have to go do this. Please ask that I may be excused. And that's first and second. Verse 18. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said, I bought a piece of ground and I must go see it. I asked you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, watch this. I have married a wife. Therefore, I can't come. What's he saying? Mama won't let me out. She, she won't let me come play. I mean... Why did Jesus use these excuses of all that he could have been? It's really to show us how absurd it is to not accept the free gift of God, the invitation of God. And there are all sorts of excuses inside and outside of the church. They're all over the place. One of my favorites, and you've heard me say it before, I don't go to church because of hypocrites. I love that one because... Yeah, there's hypocrites in the church. And there's hypocrites at the ball game. There's hypocrites at your work. They're everywhere. You know, plenty of room. We got room for one more hypocrite. Come on in. You'll fit in just fine. They're all over the place. I'd rather spend a few years in church with hypocrites than eternity in hell with them. It's like saying that because there's counterfeit money out there, that I'm going to throw away all my money because there's counterfeit money out there, and I don't want any part to that. You wouldn't throw good money away just because there's counterfeit out there. That's insane. And in all of this, it tells us one thing. There's no valid reason not to live our lives in witness to God. It's amazing what kind of weather will keep people out of church nowadays. And I'm not talking about 12-foot snowstorms. That's a pretty good one to stay home in. But I'm talking, I, I mean, somebody looks out the window, ah, it's starting to sprinkle, you know. The last church I was on staff at, um, it would be raining. I didn't, my phone would be blown. Hey, we having church tonight? Hey. Yes, we're in Nebraska. It rains from time to time. Get used to it. You know, it's just amazing what people make excuses for. Here's another one. I can't afford to pay my tithes. The truth of it is, can't afford not to. 
When we give to God, God blesses us. This isn't to build a great building. This isn't anything. It's a principle that God laid out that we give first to Him and we trust Him to meet all of our needs. It's the first fruit offerings that I'm giving before I know if there's any other harvest. I'm giving the first that He has in dedication to Him and honor. I'm giving it back to Him knowing that He's going to bless the rest. How about this one? I don't have time to read my Bible and pray. I don't have time. I'm busy. It's amazing when people say that because it's like, look at your time in the day. How much time do you waste? If you're on Facebook, you have time. Get up earlier if you have to. You do what you have to do to make it work. We act like somehow we're entitled because we go to church and when we, well, we don't have to pray and read my Bible. You know, my spiritual duties are done at 11.15 on Sundays. I'm out. I'm good. Till next week. That is not what God said. It's the same with finances. You know, if I can't afford to pay my tithe, then I probably don't need a cell phone. I don't need cable. I can even go without air conditioning if I had to. But I have to do the things that God told me to do first. I can live with all this, out this other stuff. We've got to stop making up excuses and share the heart of God. And you can hear the heart of God in this passage that we just read. They're sitting down to eat, and it was in verse 16, he said, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. What are they doing? They're celebrating the fact that they are in the kingdom of God. It's a prideful statement. Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. But then you hear the heart of Jesus right here. And he immediately begins to tell them about all the people out there that are missing out on it. There are people out there that are starving. It'd be like us sitting in a restaurant full of windows, eating a steak dinner, and there's four little kids sitting out there starving, watching us do it. There's not a person in this room that out of compassion is not going to stand up and say, let me give you something. But we don't do that. We don't take that same kind of action when it comes to the things of God. Instead of excusing ourselves and taking them some food or, or bringing them in to sit with us, we just sit there and eat and watch them. Ha, they're going to hell. Sorry you're hungry. It's too bad. When you're a part of a church that preaches the Word, that's a blessing from God. There aren't a lot of churches that really do this stuff anymore, and yet it's almost as if we try to hoard everything for ourselves instead of going out. How do we worship God? We come in and we go out. We know that our lives are to be a living sacrifice. We sang about that today. What does that mean? We're laying our lives down just like He did. And you, through the years, you know, I've been doing ministry a long time. Through the years, it's like I have people come up and say, I love God so much and I'd be, I'd be willing to die for God. And that's really good. It's, we should do that. I mean, there are times that we, we saw the apostles that died because of their faith. We see martyrs. We've read all through history that died for their faith. There are people today who are dying for their faith. That's really good. The problem is we don't have enough people living for their faith. People that are willing to live righteously in the face of opposition. Yeah, they're willing to lay down their lives, and that's really noble. But God doesn't need everybody to lay down their lives. He needs everybody to live their lives for Him. Another thing that Jesus said in this is that the meals are already paid for. It's taken care of. Come and eat it. It's already taken care of. Where are we at? I mean, we talk about who is God. And we go through Scripture like, who is He? We've got to understand Him. And we did it in a week, which means it wasn't all-encompassing, okay? We can never grasp the fullness of God. We just don't have the ability. But, and then we look at, at who am I in relationship to Him? And ultimately comes down to who did He say I am? He created me, but where do I go from here? But the last one is crucial. 
is how do I worship God? And it's going out and coming in. It's both. It's, it's beyond that. If we are the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit today, if we are the place where the Holy Spirit resides, for the first time, people shouldn't have to come to that tabernacle. That tabernacle should be going to where the people are. It's all changed. It's, it's, it's kind of like this, and I want you to think about it. And some of you may have to think back a ways, okay? Think back to your younger days. But that first time when you had a, a friend of yours, you know, a, a, usually a guy, who falls in love with a girl, okay? Can you remember back that, that far? You, some of you wives are like, yeah, I remember when I used to like my husband, but now not, not as much. But, but, but when he falls in love with, with a girl, what happens to that guy? He disappears. You don't see him anymore. Before that, he's your basketball buddy. He's playing with you. He's hanging out. You know, you're always doing stuff together. And as soon as he gets a girlfriend, he's gone. You don't know where he is. He's spending all his time with her. And when he's not with her, all he wants to do is talk about her. And why aren't we that in love with Jesus? Why are we not so in love with God that we act that way? That's all we want to do is talk about. Always looking for a way to turn a conversation into the gospel. Any conversation. Turn it into the gospel. How can I preach Jesus in this? In everything we do. Some people, and I kind of told you guys this story, you know, I, I played pretty miserable golf last week, and, but I got an opportunity to share with the guy, which, which was really good. But I have a brother-in-law who's not exactly the most loving Christ follower, but if he was going to use golf to witness to people, I'd tell him to give up golf. Because that's not going to work. You can only throw your club so many times for people question whether you're a Christian or not, you know, or break them or whatever the case may be. We've got to fall that in love with Jesus that we turn everything. How do we worship him? It's living our lives as a living sacrifice to him, holy, pleasing and acceptable before him, willing to give up everything to pick up our cross daily and follow him. We've got to live our lives in a way that proclaims the love of God with every person we come around, every person we come in contact with has to do this. And you hear me say this a lot, and I'll continue to say a lot because it is important. Honestly, it's probably the most important thing that we do. We as a church has become nothing but fat babies where we have our mouths open, feed me, feed me, feed me, and we're not willing to go out there and do something. And sometimes doing something is awkward, and sometimes doing something is expensive, and sometimes doing something is painful. But don't Talk to Jesus about that because his doing something was extremely painful. Don't talk to Paul about that because his doing something was painful. Don't talk to any of those guys that have ever laid down their lives because their doing something was painful. We worship God in everything. When we worship God, our lives belong to him. We do it not in song, although that's part of it, but we do it with everything. My checkbook belongs to God, and if God says write it, I'm writing it. If, if, if God says, I want you to give this, then I'm giving that. If he says, you don't need that car, I want you to give it to them, then it, it's theirs. Because I know God will provide. I'm not worried about that. I know that anything that I do has to bring glory to him. And if it doesn't, then I probably don't need to be doing it. If I can't control myself. I've, I've had people in my office telling me that they've had a porn addiction. Obviously, that is not a, a, a thing that brings glory to God. In fact, I've seen marriages break up. Or I've seen people that have heart, or, or, I mean, just completely destroyed their lives over this. You know what I tell them? Get rid of your phone, get rid of your computer, and get off the grid because you can't control yourself. And they don't want to. Well, I've got to have it. I have to be able to have it. You don't have to have anything. It's what are you willing to give up to live your life in a way that worship Christ in everything? When Jesus went to the cross and died for us, he showed us a picture of how we should live. 
Because what is the one thing that was consistent all the way through between the crown of thorns, the beating that he took, is that they were hitting him and the flesh was being ripped from his body. And it's the exact same thing that we've got to do in order to worship God. We've got to rip the flesh from our bodies. Amen? Now this may seem like an awkward place to receive communion. And it kind of is, but I want you to think about that. What are we talking about? We're talking about living our lives in a way that brings glory to Christ, right? A living sacrifice. Jesus was a living sacrifice. He lived His life to bring honor to the Father. He laid His life down to bring forgiveness to the world. And God raised Him back from the dead and we worship Him for eternity. 